Well, good morning, church. It has uh, been five months since I've seen you from this perspective, at least for the RP folks, and I think four months for the RCR folks. So, good morning. Glad to be able to gather with you uh, to worship God together again. So, a a rule or a guideline that I have given myself as a preacher when it comes to addressing politics in the pulpit uh, is that my goal has always been that I would want someone to be able to listen to me preach 100 sermons 100 times and I would still not want them to know where I fall politically. One week I would want a Uh, Republican kind of right-leaning individual to be able to uh, come and listen to me preach and think that I agreed with everything that that they thought. And then the very next week, I would hope that a a kind of more democratic, more left-leaning individual would be able to come and, you know, think that I agree with everything that they believe. And then I would hope that the very next week, both would come and be equally angry at me. And the goal in that is never to be apolitical or to never talk about those things. The goal in that is to show that Jesus and the gospel of Jesus does not belong exclusively to one political party. Jesus cares for the unborn and he fights for them and Jesus cares for the already born, particularly the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the oppressed. And so my goal over the last several years has to Always wear the pastor hat. Always wear the church leader hat. And never let my own personal uh, opinions and leanings show forth. Simply because I would not want anyone to hear or think, oh, well, this is what the pastor thinks. Therefore, this must be the official position of the church as a whole. And so I know that there are going to be consequences for this. And in some sense, I am going to regret this down the line. But this week, I am going to break my rule. Given where we are in our country, and given where we are in our church, and given what needs to be said this morning, given what needs to be said in such a way that it will be heard, how it is intended to be heard, and so that peace and justice and unity and a greater love for Jesus is the result, I'm going to break my rule and I'm going to lay my own political cards down on the table. So, I mean, so, so, so let's just take a moment, even before I do that, I'm just going to say some common political, some social buzzwords right now, and as I do, just, just examine your own heart. See what happens in your own soul when I say some of these things. See how you respond. Donald Trump. Joe Biden. Black Lives Matter. Blue Lives Matter. All Lives Matter. Peaceful protesting, rioting and looting, police brutality, Antifa, Fox News, CNN, I Can't Breathe, Social Justice, Social Justice Warrior, Defund the Police, Protect and Serve. I say that litany of words and immediately all of our minds are filled with different images and different emotions. And to some degree, on somewhere in those words, everybody is angry and frustrated and scared. The thing is that the phrases that bring you anger might bring other people joy and hope, and the phrases that bring you joy and hope might make other people angry. So just as an attempt to avoid 70 different understandings uh, when I say those words and having 70 different 
uh, importation of meaning and assumption of meaning. I'm just going to lay my own cards down and show you and tell you what I mean when I say those words so that hopefully that agreed upon understanding will avoid any unnecessary anger and any unnecessary speaking past one another. So again, I'm breaking my own rule because I think that the benefits of doing so will outweigh the detriments. And just as the final disclaimer, these are my own personal opinion and positions. This is not the official stance of Redemption Castle Rock or Redemption Parker. This is not the official position of other leaders in the church. This is Matthew the person, not Matthew the pastor, who is saying these things. All right, here it goes. Politically, I lean right. Within the confines of a two-party political system, I align myself more with the Republican Party. I think that abortion is modern-day genocide, that life is a gift from God, and it should be protected at all costs. I'm a believer in free financial markets with little government interference. I believe that governments and economies grow best and grow most effectively with little tax interference from the government. I believe that marriage is an institution given to us by God that is a lifelong commitment made between one man and one woman. And so in those senses, I lean right. When it comes to immigration and actually caring for widows and foreigners and orphans, I probably lean a little left there. When it comes to the more recent discussion or at least recent in most of our circles, of of talking about defunding the police, I think completely abolishing police would be an error. God's foundational purpose of government is to pursue justice, so I think that police forces are a biblically allowed institution and instrument for pursuing justice. But if by defund the police you mean demilitarize or you know, revising internal investigation and qualified immunity and talking about reform of de-escalation, you know, th- those are things I'm willing to talk about and learn more about. When it comes to Black Lives Matter as a slogan, as a theological and anthropological statement, I am in full support. Genesis 127 says that all men and all women are made in the image of God. Therefore, people from every nation, every ethnic group are inherently precious and are inherently deserving of honor and respect simply because they are human and they are made in the image of God. And so as a slogan, as a theological and anthropological statement that black and brown lives matter if you cannot agree that the life given to people of color by God is inherently valuable if you cannot agree with that as a Christian statement that there are plenty of doors around and you can walk right through any of them right now when it comes to black lives matter as an institution or an organization that is not something that I can fully endorse From reading BLM's own statement of beliefs, I agree with many of them and understand and appreciate and even agree with with the love and inclusion that they extend towards other people groups, but there are affirmations there which do contradict clear biblical teaching. I I could probably say more, but at that point I would just lose control of my emotions and start ranting, which would not be helpful for this setting. So that is where I'm coming from. And I know that to some degree, every single person in this room is upset with me about some of that. And and that's fine. We we can talk about that later. I just feel like I I needed to say those things for for two reasons. One, 
Because in order to preach from this passage and in order for it to be heard and for defenses and objections based on different importations of meaning from different words and phrases, I think it was just necessary for everybody to know where I'm coming from, that know what I mean when I say certain words. So that's one reason. The second reason is because I know that the majority of the people in this room would probably agree with 75% of what I just said. When it comes to abortion, taxation, finances, marriage, the overwhelming majority of RCR and RP would agree with me. Kind of just the elephant in the room and the reality is that this is a right-leaning church or churches. This is a vastly Republican majority church. If this were a left-leaning church, say if we were in Boulder, this would just be a completely different sermon. We'd have to be coming to this from a completely different angle. But knowing that this is a right-leaning church and knowing that there are things that need to be said that will make many of us uncomfortable, I'm laying down my political cards in the hopes that it will grant me a fair hearing. Okay, CNN is not where I get my discipleship material. Fox News isn't either, but CNN is not it. I don't have a coexist bumper sticker. I'm not some liberal trying to infiltrate the church. What I'm saying is that for the most part, I am one of you. For the most part, I think most of us would agree on most things, but some things need to be said. And again, I feel like I've sold my soul in doing this, but in laying down my political cards, I'm hoping that doing so will lower some defensiveness so that hopefully we can hear the words of Jesus clearly and so that we can follow him most faithfully. Now already, to to those who lean more left, this is where I need to reiterate, this is only my position, not the position of the church. We desire to be a church where we are not united by our politics, but by the gospel of Jesus, and we want all people on the political spectrum to be welcome here. All right, so there are a million caveats. I could spend an hour just on caveats. But with all that said, let's turn our attention to our passage for this morning. Mark read for us from Amos chapter 5. A little context for Amos. Amos was written in about 760 B.C. Amos was from the southern kingdom of Judah, but his ministry took place in the northern kingdom of Israel. And at the time that Amos was preaching... In Israel, Israel was experiencing economic prosperity. They were experiencing just incredible social development and long periods of international and political peace. So business was booming in Israel. And as a nation, Israel had interpreted this prosperity as a sign of divine favor and blessing from God. They thought the stock market is up, unemployment is low, there are no political enemies at our borders, God must love us and be blessing us. It was the prosperity gospel of the 8th century BC. And when the stock market returns became the end all be all, when the stock market became the ultimate measure of success in the nation, what always happens in those situations happened. Greed took over. And yes, Israel's stock market was booming, but that growth came at the expense of the poor, whom the rich and powerful were systematically oppressing. And so because of all of this, there were different attitudes within the nation of Israel. Those in power, those who were profiting socially and economically, thought that Israel was on the verge of a a golden age. 
They thought that Israel was about to rise to be the world's greatest economic and military power. Then you had other people in Israel who had witnessed and experienced the oppression that Israel had risen to prominence with. And this group believed that not only was Israel not about to enter a golden age, but in actuality that Israel was about to collapse. Some thought that within just a few years, Israel would fall and descend into chaos and oblivion. And so those two perspectives and opinions were often expressed with this term that we see the day of the Lord. If you've ever read through the 12 minor prophets, then you know that the phrase day of the Lord is very common and it plays a prominent role. And for that first group in Israel, those who thought that Israel was on the brink of a golden age, they understood the day of the Lord to be the day when God would make all of their dreams come true. They thought that the day of the Lord would be the day when God put Israel at the head of the nations, that Israel would be a dominant world power, and that that day would usher Israel into a period of unimaginable prosperity and peace. That's what one group thought the day of the Lord would be. The other group in Israel... Those who had been oppressed and taken advantage of in order for Israel to get ahead, they viewed the day of the Lord as the day when God would visit Israel and pour out his judgment on Israel because of their unfaithfulness. This group believed that because of Israel's greed, because of Israel's oppression, because of its pride, that God would pour out his judgment on Israel. Judgment might come in the form of famine, it might come in the form of a a market crash, it might come in the form of a political, military invader. Whatever it was for this group, the day of the Lord was not something to gleefully look forward to, but something to dread and something to repent of before it was too late. Alright, so that's the background. Those are the two perspectives that people within Israel had at this time. So let's jump in and see what Amos has to say about all of this. He starts out in verse 18 and he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. So right off the bat, Amos tells us which group is right. The golden age of prosperity and peace, that group, they are thinking about the day of the Lord completely wrong. The day of the Lord will not be a national coronation and a reason for celebration. It is not light. The day of the Lord will be a day of darkness. Then Amos describes what that dark day of the Lord will be like. In verse 19, he says, It will be as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. So no matter which way you run, you're dead. If you run this way, you get eaten by a lion. If you run the other way and escape the lion, there's a bear waiting for you to tear you to pieces. The inevitable end is death. Amos goes on. It's like if you went into the house and leaned against the wall and a serpent bit him. So if by some miracle you manage to escape both the lion and the bear, you run as fast as you can and and sprint inside your home to avoid all danger. You sprint inside, shut the door, lean against the wall to catch your breath. You think that you're safe and then out of nowhere a venomous snake comes out and bites you and you drop dead. So again, Amos reiterates in verse 20, it is... Not, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Judgment, death, and darkness are what really await Israel at the coming day of the Lord. And so in the next stanza, Amos goes on to tell us why this dark judgment day of the Lord will come to Israel. 
He says, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. So Amos is just going in on the religious practices and ceremonies of that day. And the interesting thing is that God had actually demanded all of these practices. You can go to various places in the law and throughout the Old Testament where God instructed his people to have feasts honoring the Lord. He instructed them to gather to worship. He instructed them to make burnt offerings and grain offerings and sacrifices of worship. He instructed them to sing their songs of praise to him. So if Israel was doing the things that God had instructed them to do, why would God go so far as to say that he hates them? That he despises them and to take them away. The answer to that is found all over the book of Amos. Back at the beginning of chapter 4, Amos was was addressing the the wealthy and the self-indulgent citizens of Israel. He said, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. You who oppress the poor, you who crush the needy. A little later in chapter 4, God mockingly and with bitter sarcasm says to the Israelites, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Offer your sacrifices for that is what you love to do, O Israel. God in Amos is denouncing the religious activity of Israel. They would come and worship, they would come and offer their tithes and their sacrifices, but far from procuring the forgiveness for their transgression, that activity itself was a transgression. Through their external transgression, though it might be proper and acceptable, it was not combined with genuine repentance and godly living. They were just going through the motions, thinking that as long as they did the external work that God had commanded to them that they did not have to have pure and godly hearts or lead pure and godly lives. I thought, as long as I show up to church, sing my songs, put something in the offering plate, as long as I go through the good Christian motions, it doesn't matter what's happening in my own heart. It doesn't matter if I ignore the greed and oppression of my own heart or if I ignore the greed and oppression of my own country. It doesn't matter if injustice goes by unpunished. After all, I didn't commit the injustice, so it's, it's not my problem. It doesn't matter if there are people being systemically, financially, and socially taken advantage of because I gave God $10. Or because I gave God $10,000. I sang really loud during worship. I got here early to help set up chairs and greet people. As long as I go through the motions and make it look like I'm doing good Christian things, I could ignore all the other stuff. And so this kind of religiosity, this kind of consumerism, this kind of purposeful blindness, this kind of external behaviorism that was devoid of true repentance and true faith, this is what Amos is railing against. He's saying, forget your feasts. 
Forget your tithes and your sacrifices. Forget your songs. Forget all that crap. Rather, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 23. There Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out a gnat. So Jesus is condemning the scribes and the Pharisees for getting so caught up in performing the external requirements of the law. He's saying, you tithe your spices for crying out loud. I have never gotten home from the grocery store, taken out my salt and my pepper and my paprika and said, I got to shave off 10% of this and I have never put it in that offering plate. Like they were so obsessed with the minutiae of the law. They got trapped in the weeds and they forgot to see the big picture. They forgot to see that the big picture of the law is that the people of God should be concerned with justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those big things are so much more important than tithing from your spice cabinet. Now, unfortunately, I think this, that this has some applications for us here at Redemption Castle Rock and Redemption Parker. Because it's easy to get caught up in the minutiae of theology and church life. I have nuanced theological conversations all the time. I get asked all the time, what was the earth made in seven days or, or is a longer period of time? Does repentance come before faith? Does, does faith come before repentance? How many of the five points of TULIP do you agree with? Should we homeschool or public school? Like, what should the structure and schedule of our church small groups be like? Because we need a third and a fourth small group to be going to. Don't get me wrong. All of those things are important. All of those questions have their place and they should be asked. But you want to know what questions I don't get asked very often? What are we as a church doing to care for the most needy in our community? What are some ways that I can love my neighbor? What are some ways that I can build community with people who don't look like me, talk like me, vote like me, or belong to the same tax bracket as I do? Are there any ways that I might be unintentionally and unknowingly causing harm and stress to someone else? I get those weightier questions sometimes, but not nearly as much as the picayune, theological, and churchy ones. And you know what? That's my fault. I want everyone to hear me say that. That is my fault. I know that I have not done a good job of focusing on the weightier matters of the law in my own life. Sinfully, I prefer to talk about the theological differences of some old dead white guy theologians. I prefer to do that rather than pursuing justice and righteousness for the brother or sister who's made in the image of God sitting right next to me. I'm just going to be honest. It is easier for me to hide behind my mountains of theology books to just read and fill my head with knowledge. It is easier for me to do that, geek out over that stuff, than it is for me to hear the stories of oppression and racism from my own black and brown friends. 
It is easier for me to hide behind some statistics that I can give as a gotcha little zinger to disprove your lived experience. It's easier for me to find the one or two news anchors or popular pastors who support the narrative that's easier for me to believe than it is for me to even open the door to have a conversation with someone from a different perspective and a different experience. And so for any sense that Redemption Castle Rock or Redemption Parker favors religiosity over righteousness, who prefers comfort and maintaining the status quo over having a difficult conversation, or for any sense that either of these churches has allowed any room for hatred and bigotry and racism to go unchallenged, then I just want you to know that I apologize. That is my fault. As a leader, as a preacher, as someone charged with leading the church in the word of God and in the way of Jesus, I apologize for ways that I have not done that in a more faithful and fully biblically informed way. Now there are millions and and, an innumerable amount of injustices that are done throughout the world and in our country today. Truly innumerable. And racism has many forms that can flow in any direction. So I do not mean to ignore or denigrate against other forms of injustice done in the world. But obviously, the most poignant and relevant race issue that we are dealing with right now in America is between white and black. So just let me share a few statistics from a book called Divided by Faith to give us a snapshot of black-white race relations in America right now. Since 1950, the unemployment level of African Americans has been twice as high as that of white Americans. Twice as high. That has remained unchanged since 1950. Income inequality between white and black is 40% worse today than it was 40 years ago. African-American babies die at twice the rate as white babies. Twice the rate. And this isn't talking about abortion. This is talking about babies who are brought full term. African-American women, mothers, are four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. As of 2018, though African-Americans make up only 12% of the United States population... Black Americans make up 33% of the U.S. prison system population. 12% of the U.S. population, 33% of the prison system. Whereas white Americans make up 63% of the U.S. population, but make up only 30% of the prison population. So black people are incarcerated at three times their percentage of the overall population, while white people are incarcerated at less than 0.5 times their percentage of the overall population. And I I could go on for an hour. And so either the reason that black babies and black mothers have a higher mortality rate, the reason that unemployment is higher in the African-American community, the reason that the majority of the prison population is black is because black people are lazy and they're not hard workers or because they're inherently criminal, or because they're weak, or because they don't care about their own families. It's either that, or 
Could it be that something else has led us to where we are today? Just could it be that being kidnapped off the shores of West Africa, being ripped out of the arms of your own family, being put on a ship and transported to a foreign land and being forced to serve as slaves for hundreds and hundreds of years has anything to do with it? I don't know. Could it be that though the Emancipation Proclamation was passed in 1865 because of Jim Crow and segregation that African Americans didn't practically earn the right to vote until 1965? That's within some of your lifetimes. Could it be that targeted mass incarceration, starting with an ever-nebulous but never-ending war on drugs, has anything to do with it? Could it be that 300 years of American history and structures have set some people up for success and held other people down? Could it be that some people, some systems, some churches have profited from racism and therefore have been disincentivized to see those realities and fight for justice? I think it could be. I think that it is. All right. So how do we move forward from here? Before we do, I think at this point it's possible that some of you are looking at me and thinking, ah, crap. There goes the church. Matthew has given in to the lie of cultural Marxism. He is a social justice warrior. He does not believe in just preaching the gospel. He's bought into some sort of social gospel. And I just need everyone here to know that I reject all of those terms. I do not believe in the social gospel. All right, I, I've read the original sources on that. Social gospel was first expressed in its modern terms in the early 1900s by a man named Walter Rauschenbusch. And taken to its extreme, the social gospel ignores the call for personal and individual repentance and faith. Historically, the social gospel preaches that Jesus does not care about repentance and faith. He only cares about societal, political reform. And that the totality of the gospel is defined by passing laws and policies through the legal system. And I reject that. That is not the totality of the gospel. What I believe the gospel to be is that the gospel demands both personal repentance and faith and a personal walk with Jesus as he transforms your heart and sets you free from sin and death. And that that reality, the reality of what Jesus has done for you, changes how you see, view, work, and live in the world. It is not social justice or cultural Marxism, or whatever nebulous term you want to throw out there to work to see injustice and oppression done away with in the world. In fact, it should be the natural response of Christians. It's not the totality of the gospel, but it is a natural natural and inevitable consequence. Do you remember, uh, if you've been at RP over the last uh, year, few months, do you remember what the title of our study through the book of Matthew is? Matthew. The king and the kingdom. And for many of us, it's easy to just focus on the king. Just, just tell me about Jesus. Just tell me about who Jesus is, what he's done, and how I can have a relationship with him. And that's important. We, we've got nothing if we don't have that. But remember that kings have kingdoms. Their reality and their rule changes how we live our lives, both in public and in private. 
And Jesus' first public words were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you read through the book of Matthew, you will find Jesus talking about and preaching about the kingdom of heaven 36 times. That is how often Jesus talks about applying the gospel to the world around us. Jesus doesn't see applying the gospel realities to our world as an abandonment of the gospel. He sees it as being fully gripped by the gospel and wanted to see justice and peace and righteousness pursued in the world. And that is what we as a church are going to be about. We are going to be about the king and the kingdom. So just let me close with two things. Because we want to be a church that is about both the king and the kingdom, let me ask you a few questions for you to ponder today and as you go about this week. What if I actually believe that Jesus came not only to bring me into his kingdom, but to expand his kingdom in and through my own world? How does my life reflect the weightier matters of the law? Does my life reflect the weightier matters of the law? What does pursuing justice and mercy look like in my own life? So just consider some of those questions. And I'll close with this. Brothers and sisters, even if you're not a brother and sister, if you are not a Christian, this is just for everybody. The reason that we are passionate about justice and unity is because that is what Jesus has accomplished for us. We had sinned against our holy heavenly father. We deserved God's righteous anger and wrath. But out of nothing other than his own love and mercy, Christ died for us and took our place. He pursued justice on our behalf. There is a reason that being brought back into a right relationship with God is called justification. It's because it is about justice. Jesus pursued a justice that we could never accomplish for ourselves. But now that he has brought us back into a right right relationship with God, because of that justification, it propels us to pursue justice in our own lives and in our world. And we don't pursue it only when it's convenient or comfortable for us to maintain the status quo. No, as Christians, we pursue justice and unity for all people. All people are made in the image of God. Okay, think Ephesians 2, that Jesus, through the cross, has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. The gospel is for everyone. Race or ethnicity or background or politics or language, none of that should be a barrier. One, to people coming to the gospel, but also for people to have inherent honor 
and respect and dignity and justice in the world. The gospel is for everyone. The table of Jesus is big enough for everyone. And so we are going to live and pray and preach and work and do everything in a way that pursues the unity that Jesus brought to us. And we are going to do that until the kingdom of God is brought from heaven to earth. It's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. This is what John wrote about in Revelation. When all the hostility is done away with, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Heaven is going to be a very diverse place where there is no injustice and there is peace and unity. And so as a reflection of that future reality, that is what we are going to work towards here. We want to be unified by nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. All are welcome to his table and we are going to pursue justice for everyone made in his image. Towards that end, would you pray with me? Father, these are heavy and difficult things to think about. And so, I pray that you would, by your spirit, open our eyes, soften our hearts, give us empathy to see The reality that injustice is so common in our world, would you give us wisdom as we think about how to best pursue justice? God, there is just so much hatred and division in our world, and God, it ought not to be so. And so we ask that through the blood of Jesus and through the Spirit that you would unify us, that you would bring us together, that you would help us to bear one another's burdens and to love one another well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.